0: everybody i'm back this week with drew jennings uh to continue the making music series so this is part two and so we'll recap on what happened last time give it to us
1: well uh, last time i guess we really uh, set the stage for what was going to become what most people think of as the you know the prime time of making music you know the um i guess my History knowledge of the history, I go back a little bit further and think that, you know, kind of the what set the stage for what we have right now is really kind of what was unbelievably influential, I guess, because of, you know, what was created out of the music that was here before. But what drives our tourism industry right now, honestly, is the age that we're about to, about to talk about right now. And it's amazing, really, to me that, something that happened uh, and was the stage was set by really Otis Redding I would say was probably the person that really changed the game for the city of Macon that um, you know because of what he did and how he was recognized uh, which you know unfortunately he passed away in the plane crash but then he set the stage for Capricorn Records being founded, which is what is uh, kind of internationally known uh, as the, you know, probably the biggest thing from making, I think, along with Otis writing yeah. a little Richard personally, <laughs> but you know, that's what drives a lot of people here from still all over the world right now.
0: Yeah, so um, I know a little bit about Capricorn Records, um, just kind of the history, but if you could kind of tell us what Capricorn Records was, um, who owned it at the time, who was mm. coming out of it in this era when it first started.
1: Well, yeah, just before that, you really, you had, um, you know, really what I was saying is the start of that golden age, really, was with Little Richard and James Brown and Johnny Jenkins, who we talked about before in the last episode, And but then Otis, you know, really uh, was, because he died at such a young age, we didn't have a huge sample of, of what he really did under his name, he's just actually people end up finding out that, oh, there's a lot of songs that he wrote that other people did, actually, that were his songs, but they covered them after he died. Um, You know, like I said, for example, the song Respect by Aretha Franklin is an Otis Redding song. Yeah. Um, the song "Hard to Handle," which has been played by the Grateful Dead for many years, also played. Uh, it was a huge hit for uh, the band the Black Crows. Yep. Is also a Otis Redding song.
0: Yeah, I actually didn't know that the "Hard to Handle" song was one of my favorites growing up, and I even had didn't even know it was Otis Redding song until um, it's actually the Cherry Blossom Festival when they had the art festival on second yeah. um uh, Mulberry, I think. Yeah. And I was walking through it and I saw like the lyrics on a shirt and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, who's like, what is this? And it was the Otis Writing Foundation. I was like, wait, this is an Otis Writing song. And I actually went and found the original. I had no clue. I'd only ever heard the Black Crows version. And it it's,
1: yeah, it's amazing. I, you know, actually, um, the Grateful Dead, Black Crows, and Otis make it their own song too. Yeah. They really do. And, but the thing is, is the, when you have unbelievable lyrics, you can do so much with them, and that's mm-hmm. really what Otis Redding was. He was a person that could reach down in your heart and pull it out of <laughs> if you needed to, or put it back in, no matter what it, it was. Uh, yeah. you know what what it was. So, um, yeah, Otis um, went to the Monterey Pop Festival in uh, nineteen, uh, I guess that would be sixty seven, and um, the Jimi Hendrix was uh, kind of making his U.S. debut. The Grateful Dead were there. The Who who had set their instruments on fire on stage, and Otis had to follow that. <laughs> and by the time Otis got out there, and he was just kind of just had this bigger than life kind of aura, and his backing band would uh, was the Stax Orchestra, which a lot of those guys became uh, Booker T and the MGS, and we had Booker T uh, Jones as the um, Street uh, Party, uh, um, one of the headliners about two years ago, gotcha. and that was one of his connections to making. Right now, as he played with Otis for a long time, and um, the just from what I understand, I wasn't there personally. It was a few years before I was born, but uh, a lot, a lot, a few years before I was born. But <laughs> the uh, the um, every band I've heard other interviews of, uh, of the bands of talking about that festival, and I remember um, there's an interview with Jerry Garcia, and he said, "What is one of the most amazing things that you saw uh, that you experienced as far as in music that you weren't involved in?" And he said, "Otis Redding at Monterey." He said he blew everybody on the stage off. He said it was amazing. He said it was like he said it was a, a performance where he had every single person in the palm of their hand and just was just controlled the whole yeah. uh, you know whole festival at the time. And he said at the end of um, the uh, by the end of Otis's set, every band that played at Monterey was around the side stage watching him perform. Wow. And you know just to show <laughs> us those were the most influential musicians of the t- of the time period, and they had that much respect for Otis. And, you know, not too long after that, Otis, you know, died in a plane crash. And when the company that was in making at that time was uh, Wall Red Entertainment, or I think it was Red Wall Entertainment. Actually, it was Redding Walden, um, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And the, um, <clears throat> more or less, they didn't know really what they were going to do. Uh, you know, at that point, they had some good artists, but some of those artists they had sold... You know the rights to Atlantic or places like that to wait to you know to do you know larger deals and everything and and because they were you know at the part they were more of a development company I guess at that time instead of a full out record label or anything like that so they still had to have other places record the stuff uh, you know the labels and and everything and or record or, excuse me they had to have other companies <laughs> uh, actually do the recording and you know they would have to go to Stax Records in Memphis or Muscle Shoals or places like that.
0: Yeah, I've always heard the saying like. Making Memphis Muscle Shoals or the however they're arranged in that, and I never quite understood what it meant. But that is
1: actually an unbelievable transition <laughs> that you have no idea that you just actually had, honestly. Because with Capricorn uh, Records, it was founded with uh, Frank Fender and um, and Alan wall or excuse me, Alan Walden was uh, Phil's brother. Alan was involved with it at the beginning of it, but he actually split off. Uh, at the uh, you know, early on in Capricorn. Um, he was actually, um, it was Phil Walden and Frank Fender were the two partners with Phil Walden being the, being the, the main, main guy behind everything. And they had actually kind of envisioned this new type of kind of record label to where they had little small subsidiary companies that would actually do different things. Like the Great Southern Company was um, the Great Southern T-Shirt Company and merchandising where all the merchandising was handled by this company. But yeah. they actually owned that company as well. The, um Paradigm uh, booking agency was the booking agency wing of it they had um, what was the another thing I want to say um, Phil Walden associates was another another company that was also in the same theres are all in the kind of the same building but they were um, the the I guess management side of it not just, not the recording side but they were the actually agent side of, uh, of the of the company so um they uh they actually founded this. Uh, Frank Fender was uh, had met um, had met Phil originally in Europe when uh, Otis was uh, touring in Europe because he was at work for Atlantic Records in the European uh, market, and uh, Otis was a huge huge hit over there. And he loved what uh, what Phil had really been doing, and was so really kind of um, you know uh, they had a, you know developed a great relationship and had also uh, you know they worked together on a lot of things when otis was uh, otis was still alive so he kind of believed in phil so much that he actually decided that he would move to macon georgia and that partner with him and from what i understand they both had december birthdays hence where capricorn came from capricorn records so they oh, Capricorns.
0: had no idea yeah <laughs> yeah
1: yep. so that was um that was the uh the idea which is and you know it's uh they so the first band they signed was the Allman Brothers Band, and uh, the uh, Wilson Pickett had been recording in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and Muscle Shoals was where one of the studios that Atlantic used in the South. Uh, that was um, uh, where a lot of the you know the the artists that were from this area actually were you know not having to kind of leave and leave home and travel all the way to New York and places like that, and they actually. Uh, would get a lot of the people off the Chitlin Circuit and places like that to make a um, to make records. Sometimes you'd get a hit. Sometimes you wouldn't get anything, and they'd just keep on going. But they would. Uh, but Atlantic was actually uh, <laughs> the um, the <laughs> Atlantic was actually the uh, you know the company that was kind of funding these uh, funding these recording studios. Uh, but she had some unbelievable uh, you know, local musicians that were their house musicians, like the, you know, uh, the Swampers that uh, Leonard Skinner talks to us, Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers. The Swampers were the house band at Muscle Shoals Sound and they were on unbelievable amount of different uh, records, including I want to say the Wild Horses record for the, uh, by, um, um, by the Rolling Stones was actually done at Muscle Shoals Sound in, uh, in, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. But um, and then like the Stax records, the Stax Orchestra was the who became Otis's band and ended up becoming Booker T and the MGs with Steve Copper and uh, some of the other uh, you know Booker T Jones and those guys. But what at that time, um, Dwayne Allman had left. uh, They were in a band called the Allman Joys and also the Hourglass with him and his brother and they were just a couple four-piece bands not the makeup that you know is the Almond Brothers all these you know almost like a little rock orchestra yeah. you know that they have uh, during especially in the later days when they added uh, a third drummer and, yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 everything but uh, they um, would uh, it, what happened was that Dwayne was kind of fed up with the way that the record industry was kind of chew you up and spit you out in California and they were signed with Liberty Records and he said that, "Hey, I'm done with this. I'm out. I quit the band." And he hitchhiked to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And when that happened, they actually Liberty kind of released him from the contract because they said, "Oh, we don't want you. You're just a dime a dozen guitar player." Yeah. It kind of shows you what they kind of really knew. They really, uh, you know, were a they were a successful record company, but
0: yeah,
1: they were more focused on singers and putting out singles. And that was kind of how the process of how it is today really uh how that kind of kind of got started but so you have a lot of the you go into an old school record uh store and there's all these people you've never heard of but they just have one song that was yeah. you know one hit wonder type thing because a lot of that was going on out in especially in california there wasn't enough full albums they were trying to kind of strike while the iron was kind of hot especially with uh, the british invasion that just had kind of taken place because this is a uh, when they were out there it was probably around 60 say 64 65 66 somewhere in that kind of uh, kind gotcha. of range and um when um when Dwayne actually uh got to muscle Shoals he ended up meeting Wilson Pickett and Wilson Pickett he talked him into covering the Beatles song that was actually still on the charts called Hey Jude yeah and um because of Phil Walden's involvement in the soul and R&B scene with Otis and uh, other people that he had uh, you know like Percy Sledge and and, uh, you know Bobby Womack, Arthur Connolly people like that that he had already had managed for a long time um, Rick Hall from Muscle Shoals sent over the uh, the copy and said hey you know what do you think about this uh, about this song he said well you got a hit he said but that's not your normal guitar player who's that guitar player on the back end and he said that's a, a guy named uh, they call him Skydog Allman. and that was a nickname that Wilson Pickett had given him uh, Dwayne Allman. And said, uh, "We got a." Uh, he goes, "He's a he's a he's a real hippie, real free spirit. I never <laughs> seen anything like him." And at the time, they said, and this is legendary. I never. I need to confirm this with a few people, but <laughs> they said that basically he had hitchhiked to the to the, to the actual sound stage there in the Muscle Shoals and actually just put a tent up out back and just slept in a tent. And which was really weird because at that time you don't think of musicians that are session musicians, what they call, you know, house musicians at a recording studio. Yeah. These guys come to work in a suit and tie. This is nineteen the sixties. They play their instrument and they go home, you know, like a nine to five yeah. job, you know. It's mm-hmm. not the rock and roll guys you see on stage or anything like that. And he said this is just completely like different for them and yeah. everything. But what it was was the free spirit that he had, honestly, and he would, you know, want to take something to another next level all the time. And that was the, the drive that Dwayne Allman really, and energy that he really gave. He pushed people to the next level, and uh, the um, I guess that energy kind of just started feeding off and some of the music that started coming out of there was just absolutely amazing, it already was, but you know you could definitely see that his influence once he got there. He did some stuff with Clarence Carter, Aretha Franklin. Um, there's a, um, a, 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 it's a Ain't Life Fair uh, by Aretha Franklin that Dwayne mm-hmm. Allman's playing guitar on the back end of it and it's almost like he is just crying along with her uh, yeah. honestly and it is amazing it's absolutely amazing um but the um you know really from there you know uh jamo who ends up being a, a lifelong drummer of the allman brothers one of the surviving members of the allman brothers at the at the moment and got him twigs uh, linden who was uh ended up was at one time was otis redding's manager was also little richard's manager at one time as well and he met little richard when he was out uh in california and then that's what kind of set him he, he basically got the job because they, he was from Macon as well yeah. and uh he actually saw him I think at the whiskey at go-go if I'm not mistaken is where uh, little Richard was uh, performing and he uh said I'm uh I'm from Macon Georgia I need a job and he said can you add he goes yeah he, can you subtract mm-hmm. he said yep he said all right you can sell merch or something like that My <laughs> yeah. merchandise that was basically like how he how he would uh got the job more or less. And um, um, but that's who uh, Phil Walden sent him and JMO over to um, to um, uh, Muscle Shoals to meet Dwayne Allman, with the idea that they wanted to rival something like Jimi Hendrix and they wanted to put a three piece together. And from you know he kind of had the idea of some people that he wanted in his band and went down to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and put together the first rehearsal in uh, in, in, in March. I want to say of uh, I want to say it was March of 1968. March 26, nineteen sixty eight, and the actual last member to join the Allman Brothers Band was Greg Allman. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Um, he actually was still out in California and had to get back down in, to um, to Florida because like he had uh, Dwayne basically called him and said, "Baby brother, you got to get down here. You're the only person that can sing in this band." And they had you know jammed a little bit together, but then when they got together and they um, they they played, that was uh, that was it. They they decided to pick up shop, come to Macon. Um, and that's where the kind of the legacy of making uh comes in right there is making. They didn't have they weren't the Allman Brothers Band when they got here. They were broke. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they were broke kids that were trying to make it in the music business, and they took on a whim just had to come up here and trust a guy that used to manage Otis Redding. Yeah, because they were huge Otis Redding fans. I think uh, um uh Greg actually says in his book. That um one of the first concerts he ever went to was an Otis Redding performance in in Nashville when he was a kid up, uh, up there, and he said it just it blew him away, and he said he knew that he wanted to he had to get uh, be in this business he had to do this, and um, from there you know the relationship developed out to where they cut their first album, um, and they actually that was before Capricorn was actually open here in Macon, the studio that is the record company and and all that had already been founded and. But the um, it was it was kind of critically acclaimed. It was really a good album. Um, it didn't get the sales that they were really kind of hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, back up just a little bit before that, right before the <laughs> excuse me, right before the album came out, that was when Mama Louise Hudson came into, uh, into play in the H and H Soul Food, because uh, Dwayne had had really been you know been taken advantage of by Liberty uh, Records before, and he wouldn't take any advances or anything like that because when they had cut an album uh, out there. They had um, taken some advances to get clothes and for food and all that kind of stuff. And by the time the record came out, they were saying, oh, well, you owe us this amount of money because uh, you know you have to pay for that stuff that we yeah. purchased for you. you know, that comes out of y'all's, you know, y'all's profit. And that was another way that a lot of the record companies got to keep all the money off these one-hit wonders and a lot of the yeah. artists didn't make anything. And um, so he wouldn't take any advances. He didn't want to be in the hole or anything like that. And... Um, they had where phil walden and associates capricorn records offices was on cotton avenue right down from uh, where city hall is and it was walking distance right down to where the h h soul food uh, um is currently today uh this time it was actually com- uh, right across the street and um then a few years um uh, well really basically at the same time it was it moved uh, over into the other place uh it was in the H and H had started on Third and Hawthorne and moved up to back of a Gulf gas station that was on uh, on Cotton Avenue and then to its current location. Which its current location it was when there when the almonds got there town. Yeah. Excuse me, I should I, I misspoke a second ago, but they came to the back door and uh, said, um, "Can they have?" Um, I guess at the time it would be six forks and two plates because that was all they had the money for
0: yeah
1: and they were taking a bite and passing the plate taking a bite and passing the plate till all the plates were gone and mama louise told me she goes I, they were all skinny as a rail and i felt so bad so i just brought them all in and fixed them a plate and i said y'all pay me when y'all can pay me and the um, they kept eating there over and over until they uh, were able to make the money. And then when they uh, that first album came out, one of the first checks that they wrote was to uh, to Mama Louise to make sure that they took care of her. Yeah. Hence how she got the nickname. and she was the technically the mother of the Allman Brothers band because they were <laughs> she really was taking care of them, like they're their children. And that was something that I, when when Greg and, and and Butch both passed away, and I was with Mama. Kind of deflecting a lot of interviews away from her because at this time she was 86 years old and uh, 85, 86 which was just right between her birthday and she was um, she was uh, I think a lot of people uh, came to the to wanting to interview her about the about them passing away as like they how they kind of saw them as fans or 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 this that and the other but they really were kids and yeah. she felt that way about them and I and I had to really kind of. Um, deflect some people away a little bit because I was like, you know, this isn't just uh, you're, she's not a fan of the band she is a fan of the band, but she's yeah. not that's not how she became to like these people she came to like these people as broke kids that needed some help and they were, you know, really nice and ended up taking care of her for yeah. a long period of time And um, so it was, you know. I had to kind of, you know, make sure they knew that was kind of clear because a lot of, a lot of them was like, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really think about it that way. I didn't think about it that way. I was like, well, you know, because when you're going the outside, kind of looking in at something, you say, okay, they weren't related, so, you know, this it's not the same thing. But really, you know, especially that's how it was, especially with Greg and Dwayne, that they were, you know, raised by their by their grandmother for the most part. Uh, Their mother had to go back to school after their father was killed. And so they were, you know, from a kind of a broken home. So a person to show some compassion and love to them was, uh, you know, something that they held in, in, in very very deep. And and it definitely showed because she definitely uh, was taken care of by them uh, in the in the later years too. You know, yeah. um, but when uh, Capricorn really got going after that, it was kind of the almonds uh, had a um, a record that they did a live performance with. Uh, um, that the sound engineer Tom Dowd, who actually built the Capricorn Studio, um, and uh, that goes to the making Muscle Shoals thing right yeah. here, and uh, that he is uh, who actually um, right after their first album came out decided that he they wanted to catch them in what they truly were, and that was where I guess the southern uh, or the East Coast side of Jam is really created right here, because really if you look at the origins of what is called Jam bands nowadays it comes from the Almond Brothers of the East Coast and the Grateful Dead of the West Coast. And from those two bands, really, and the, during the late and middle 70s, it was uh, amazing how many times that they were touring together and playing together to where these two bands almost kind of mirrored each other and they had that same kind of cult following. I guess the uh, being that the hippie movement was kind of based out of California and mm-hmm. the... Uh, the more free, I guess, the more free spirited type of um, um, atmosphere that was out there versus what was over here at that time was reason that you see the uh, the, the the Grateful Dead is this, um, you know, really kind of uh, as the, what you say is the real creator of jam. But really, if you look at it, it's really it's really both of them, honestly, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, in nineteen seventy three, the Grateful Dead and Almonds. Did a uh, concert at Watkins Glen, and it was the largest concert, and uh, up, and it may still be the largest concert uh, to this day. It was a, uh, they sold seven hundred and fifty thousand tickets, but it ended up being about one point five million people showed up Jesus. for this concert, and. They said you, you could step out on stage, and you just saw people from as far as you could see. That they actually had to put another set of speakers about halfway through because the people in the back actually couldn't hear it. You were all over a mile away from the uh, yeah. from the stage and everything. So
0: is it just like a big open area? I mean, it was Watkins put... Glen
1: uh, race tra- Watkins Glen racetrack, which okay. is a not a racetrack like an oval racetrack. It's a road track, so it's uh, you know you get the, t- the turns and all that, but it's wide open uh, over about I want to say. I think it's like, like uh, basically a wide-open space that's over 100 acres.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, how and do you fit 1.5 million people somewhere? Exactly.
1: It was like one of those things where you didn't camp at a campsite. You camped at the concert, and you just went, you know, that's where it was, and you just got up because yeah. it, it kind of <laughs> engulfed it, really. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, but the, but the you know, that kind of shows you the influence that they got to. But, and so people were coming from all over the United States to try and become a Capricorn Records. And Capricorn— did so much for not just music, but it also kind of became a a an element all of itself that it was influential on in the election of Jimmy Carter. It was influential on um, you know the development of how what modern record how the organization what or more modern style uh, record labels are kind of are done. Um, the being able to have Tom Dowd actually build the Capricorn Room also made the music sound absolutely amazing. Tom Dowd was a uh, an engineer for Atlantic Records, but he was basically the godfather of, uh, or the father, honestly, of what modern sound equipment is he is the person that invented um individually miking instruments he was the person that actually um inventing what is called tracking more or less that you even digital tracking that you have nowadays he actually was the person that did it with tape originally and would splice and cut tape together huh. um he took a soundboard which used to be this whole wall of knobs more or less and if you needed to you needed to run down to the other end of the room to turn this one, then have to run to the other end to turn this yeah. one. He actually condensed that into was the modern board with the like slides? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly. Uh, the these uh, slides that you see right there uh, on that board, he actually uh, went uh, built the first one out of uh, parts that he got from a Radio Shack. Uh, oh wow! And and it was in uh, I want to say. It was in Atlantic Studios up in New York and then ended up doing the same thing in Muscle Shoals. Now, Muscle Shoals, Macon, and Miami and Memphis at Stax Records, uh, Criteria Studios in Miami, Capricorn in um, Macon and the Muscle Shoals Sound, those were all subsidiaries of Atlantic Records. So he was the guy that would, he, you could either find him in those four places because he said there wasn't any music being made in, in Nashville or, or New York. He said all the music that was being made was actually in Macon, Muscle Shoals, Memphis, or Miami. And he said Macon was really the leader of all of, of that, you know, in the in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Um, and with Muscle Shoals a real close second. Um, Criteria down in Miami got its fame from Eric Clapton more or less. had come over, and that was one of the places that he was a, a resident. And then when uh, the Almonds were playing a concert in, uh, in, in, in 1971 early part of 1971 in, uh, or excuse me 1970 I believe in uh, Miami mm-hmm. um, actually Dwayne Allman called up uh, Tom Dowd at Criteria and said hey we heard Eric Clapton was recording you know, I'm a big fan I'd love to come and meet him he says I think that'd be fine let me, uh, let me ask him and I'll, and I'll get back to you and they were playing at the Hollywood Bowl which was uh, where University of uh, ended up being the um, excuse me the they were playing at the Orange Orange Bowl, gotcha. and it would uh, ended up where actually where the Miami Marlins stadium sits right now is uh-huh. where this concert took place because they tore that all that down to yeah. actually build the Marlins new stadium, and the uh, at the end of the conversation when we was on the phone, Eric walked into the room with uh, Tom and he said. Um, he said, who was that on the phone? He said, that's a guy named uh, uh, Dwayne Allman. He said, you talking about the chap that plays the uh, tail end of Wilson Pickett's Hey Jude? And he said he knew the song instantly. Yeah. And he said, uh, "He said, yeah, that's him. He said, that's the finest rock, uh, blues rock guitar I've ever heard in my life. He said, I'm a huge fan of his. He is the greatest guitarist I've ever heard. Yeah. And he goes, I'd love to meet him. He said, well, they're playing over in uh, in Miami right now. He said, let's go. And they packed up the car. They went over. He said they had to park about a mile away, and he said as soon as he opened up the door, he said Eric just stopped in his tracks so he could hear that tone. He said it was just the the perfect blues rock tone, and um, the he had invited actually they ended up seeing each other at the concert and at the very the very front uh, of the stage Eric kind of walks inside the inside the little um, I guess the barrier lines and yeah. he go, uh Dwayne opens his eyes and sees him and he freezes and Dickie has to take over the solo <laughs> and he says he looks down Dickie then looks down and he freezes and then they get back in it and uh, Dwayne said he played an awful show that night, but he was nervous. But he he really did, and he played a good show. And yeah. uh, Eric invited him back to uh, the studios, and that's where Layla, uh, the song Layla, was really born. Um, a lot of people don't realize that Dwayne Allman is the lead guitarist on Layla. Um, that is actually a um, was a, an acoustic song, I believe. And then they were playing around with the studio and. The fourth member of Derek and the Dominoes became Dwayne Allman for a short period of time up until he was, uh, until he had passed away in the motorcycle wreck. And that was the thing that, uh, was really kind of crazy. Dwayne, not too long after that, uh, with the, they actually did the Fillmore East recordings, uh, and that was with Tom Dowd and then doing Layla. It made him, uh, those, the Fillmore East is actually the, Long or the most um sold live album of all time, I believe. I'm, I I there may have been something in modern uh, that is now because uh, really, the with the digital downloads and all that, the game has changed com- completely, completely yeah. with how uh, things are kind of kept. I mean, you got to think about like when somebody got to a platinum record and, or a gold record, they were selling a million copies, they were selling 100,000 copies of a record, not just a download at one time. Somebody was basically yeah. having to go to a store, buy that, and then.
0: Take you it know, home. and take
1: it home, yeah. and they weren't buying just the, you know the one song on; they were complete albums and and everything too. So that was uh the way that things are kind of tracked is a lot different nowadays too. But the um the Fillmore East album uh put Dwayne on a whole nother level, and then the Layla as well. And with those, which he really uh, they were being released at the time he passed away, and with those. Uh, Records it kind of it kind of made him almost like immortal. You know, yeah. like he's is bigger-than-life type person, and, yeah. which he really was. And the band kind of went into a couple different directions. They got a lot more of a country or sound at that time because Dickie Butts kind of took over a little bit more, and he had a more country background. But then you had the bands like Marshall Tucker Band. You had bands like... Um, you had uh, Elvin Bishop. You had Wet Willie. You had um, uh, Alan Walden broke off and uh, signed um, uh, to I think it was Song of the South Records was his uh, was his label and it mm-hmm. was um, the uh, uh, Leonard Skinnerd was his first band that he actually signed. So yeah. the making influence at that time becomes unbelievable and it was all started because of a uh, band that was a you know band from the south but it was also a band that you know was a uh integrated band as well with um with um you know jamo being african-american gentleman in a band that was majority a majority white guys and they were from the south which is another thing that was a, a, a real a lot different than normal too yeah but um the uh from there you 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 had a capricorn take the image of changing what it was like to be from the South, uh, too. It was, you know, a... Um, or, <laughs> more or less, from the time of the Almond started, mm-hmm. you had uh, segregation and the fight of integration and everything that was going on, and you had an image of a very... South not a very good place. To the birth of Capricorn Records, making it kind of cool to be from the South again, Uh, actually having some pride around, you know, who the, who, you know, what, what we can do. And to, you have a president that's a peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, Jimmy Carter, which the almonds and the capricorn were very influential because they actually would, uh, introduce Jimmy Carter at a lot of events and, and he would come out on stage and he really popularized the youth movement. That's how he kind of got elected. To you had mm-hmm. movies like Smokey and the Bandit and The Dukes of Hazard and, and and all these uh, different southern comedians like Ernest uh, P. World. I don't know if you remember Jim mm-hmm. Barney, who was uh, a he was a guy named Ernest P. World. And it was like Ernest Saves Christmas and Ernest Goes to Camp and all these movies yeah. that kind of spun off in the '80s, to where it changed the complete image of how it was to be from the South. Um, and then from there, after you know, Capricorn had um, had some financial troubles because. I will say this the Macon didn't embrace the music scene as we think that it is now and there was some you know there was a lot of with some of those bands drug use and uh and also trying to make sure that uh, I guess the tax evasion basically off of you know uh, more or less if you can't get somebody for drugs you go after them as a RICO act yeah. or something <laughs> like that and there was a lot of the bands had a lot of that and the, the penalties were pretty severe so that you know they kind of the Capricorn kind of Mecca that Macon was was kind of destroyed by the city of Macon uh, for the most part at that time. And now we embrace it now because it's really the thing that has brought so much more tourism here. And we, you know, if we could have realized what was going on at the time, but it was such, I guess, really, the thinking was not as progressive, I guess, as it is now. And um, so it did kind of, um, it did kind of, you know, we didn't completely push about a town, more or less, but it wasn't a as uh, friendly as an atmosphere as we are now. And basically, it is something that really the city kind of survived, Really does survive off of. Um, the um, The next kind of little transition is you have with uh, with Capricorn, though, was uh, Frank Fender. He passed away of a heart attack in 1983, mm-hmm. and then from there you had a um, where it kind of went kind of not really out of business, but it just didn't really kind of dissolved a little bit more or less. And, um, but, uh, there were some kids that actually moved from, uh, from Macon, Georgia and went up to Athens, Georgia at that time. They had actually had worked, uh, as um you know, high school interns and and, and had high school jobs with the uh, with the record companies and with Phil Walden and all that, and they were all you know musicians. And the what thing is is uh, sometimes the the next generation of musicians can be born out of something that you don't really realize it's even being born at that time. Yeah. And uh, a guy named Mike Mills and uh, Peter Buck moved to Athens, Georgia. They were friends here in Macon and played a couple bands around here. And um, then uh, they met a guy named Michael Sipe in the late 70s when they had gotten there, and they formed a band called R.E.M., and R.E.M. ended up becoming the biggest band in the world. And, yeah, I had no uh, idea they
0: had any type of Macon roots. Yeah,
1: definitely so, uh, and uh, they definitely do. Um, Mike Mills' mother still lives here, right here in Macon. Uh, really. Couple um, about a month ago, I actually sat and watched the Braves game with Mike at the <laughs> Rookery Bar because uh, yeah. they were actually in town uh, perform or rehearsing for the uh, for a. Um, Thing uh, that the concert they did with Chuck he did with Chuck Lavelle and um, and Robert McDuffie, and they did a, it was an evening of Georgia music where they basically covered a lot of the artists that were famous artists from the state of Georgia um, and I think they did one up in um, Atlanta and I believe a one in Savannahs were the only uh, were the two places that they did the uh, did this show and everything um, but the um, From from there, you know that was the thing is like the making music scene influenced so many different people. After that, you had Tom uh, Petty and the Heartbreakers uh, try to come up here. They were known as a band called Mudcrutch, and Phil Walden turned them down. Um, I want to say Ian uh, Copeland uh, from uh, the Police. uh, The that was the you know because of the Frank Fender's connection with the European market and him being from that area. Um, I want to say the police were actually going to be signed by Capricorn, and they ended up turning them down as well. Um, so you know, you had all these bands from all over the world want to come in, actually being a uh, being a part of this scene, and they were influenced by them. You know, Ronnie Blair from uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, Blair's Furniture—that's his sister that owns owns that—and there's there's a connection with that band right here as well, but. Tom Petty being from Gainesville and the Almonds originally being from you know, the Jacksonville kind of Daytona Beach area, you know, it's just, it's kind of a you know they knew definitely followed each other and, and everything. And um, from this era, I guess my is where you find my favorite bands. Yeah. Uh, Almonds <laughs> have been one of my favorite bands since I can remember. Honestly, yeah. I, I've. A lot of people would come into um, the Almond Brothers and they hear songs like Ramblin' Man or Melissa as the songs that were the ones that are there, the ones I guess that they hear on the radio a lot. And like me, that was probably the first songs that I heard as well. Um, but when I was about 12 years old, um, I put on a Dwayne Almond Anthology album uh, on a record, and I still have a record today. And I heard BB uh, King medley that they did when they were the uh, Almond Joys. And I was like, "Man, that sounds that sounds different." <laughs> and then I took that one off, and I put on the Fillmore East album. Uh, and next thing I know, the song "Whipping Post" was on, and I said, "Man, this is crazy. I love this. is awesome. I don't know, uh, no, really, what this is, but I got to find out." So I ran downstairs with the album covered and asked my dad. I said, "Dad, who is this?" And he says, "You know who that is." He said, "That's the Allman Brothers." I said, "Just like the um." You know, the song Rambling Man, you hear on the radio on, on Q106 or something like that. And I said, Man, this just doesn't sound like the same band. I said, And he said, Well, the guy that you hear playing on that is a guy named Dwayne Allman. And the band sounded a little different when it first started out. It was virile, bluesy, and, and had a lot of jazz influences. And, you know, Rambling Man's a little bit more of a country or song, is yeah. what he said to me. And I, and I said, I said, This is awesome. I love this. I want to hear, listen to all, everything they play. Yeah. And he said, Well, let me, he goes, Let me tell you something. And he said, Now, That band... Is not, they weren't born here, but the band started here in Macon, Georgia, and he said they became the biggest band in the world. And he said, So, you know what you can do? He says, You can listen to that. He said, But never forget, they're from right here where you are, and that you can become the biggest thing in the world, whatever you choose to do, too. (laughs) And he used it as a motivational type of thing to me, and that stuck with me to this day. And it was something that I ended up wanting to learn as much as I can about the band and, and everything, and that's really kind of what's helped me in my job all the way through, you know. Being able to uh, to be a um, uh, just the historic aspect yeah. and be a historian of the city uh, of the city and the area as well.
0: Yeah. Well, from yeah. the show, you've definitely proved that. <laughs> but, well, um, next week or next time, I guess. I know we're gonna start with uh, the Capricorn reincarnation. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. We definitely look forward to that. And thanks so much for coming in again.
1: <laughs> awesome! Can't wait. <laughs>
0: Um, So if you are from Macon and you're listening, we do have a couple upcoming concerts. So coming up super, super soon, like November 22nd soon. So what, nine days? Uh, Travis Shirts going to be playing at the Macon City Auditorium. Uh, The Newsboys are coming up November 14th. Let's see. Uh, There's a Capricorn Revival December 3rd. I know that's going to be kind of like a grand reopening of Capricorn Records. Sean Mullins, November 26th at the Hargrave Capital Theater. Uh, Mother's Fine is November 29th at the Hargaret Capitol Theater and then Cole Swindell is coming March 13th at the Macon City Auditorium and a personal kind of fan of that I'm a fan of is uh, Susto is playing November 22nd at the Hargaret Capital Theater <laughs> and then those dates are a little messy but if you ever want to know what the concerts are just google upcoming Macon concerts and you'll find them all right there so join me next week Uh, when it's back by myself, doing what I normally do, which is picking a genre and talking about it, I haven't decided which one that's going to be yet. I'm thinking maybe like an EDM part two, since EDC Orlando just happened, and I really want to talk about that, but this episode was really long, so I'm not going to put you guys through it, but we'll see what happens next week, and then two weeks from now, you'll get the final edition of Making Music History with Drew, (laughs) so listen out for that, and thanks for listening.